The Battle of Luz in 1915 was a turning point in the Great War, the first time large numbers of men of Kitchener's army went into attack on the Western Front. What can we find of it more than a century later, as we visit Luz in a day? As September moves towards October, it's autumn on the old front line. I saw my last swifts of the year over Thiepval when we did the Silent Cities tour the other week. And now the trees and lanes and the fields across those battlefields of the Great War will be changing as the seasons change, the colours will return and bathe that landscape in a different kind of aura compared to the summer with those long days of bright sun. Now the long shadows return, changing the landscape in so many different ways. And I hope to see some of you out on the Western Front, on the battlefields of the Great War, across that old front line over the course of the coming months. This week we had a podcast supporters evening where we were joined by Sarah Nathaniel of the Commonwealth Wargraves Commission to talk about their non-commemoration project, in particular the work they're doing to address the issue of many non-commemorated African soldiers who had died in the African campaigns of the First World War. And it made me realise that this is an aspect of the Great War we have yet to cover on the old front line, and we will at some point. But it was good to see a record audience attending the podcast supporters evening. And they're there for those of you who kindly support this podcast via Buy Me A Coffee or Patreon. We have those normally once a month where we have either a guest or I do a talk myself. And it's part of the benefits, a way that I can say thank you to those of you who support the podcast in that way. We're going to add an additional benefit to that in October, which is a podcast supporters newsletter that will come every month, about every four to six weeks probably, but hopefully every month. And that will come into your inbox on your email and details of that will be posted on the Buy Me A Coffee and Patreon websites in due course. The test email to make sure it all operates will go out in early October. More on that shortly. And if you'd like to support the podcast through those two different methods, you can go onto the podcast website oldfrontline.co.uk and there are links on there to it and also you can find links to it in the different podcast episode pages as well whether that's on the podcast website or on things like apple podcasts as well but remember as i always say you support the podcast just by listening to it and i can't thank all of you enough for the way you listen continue to listen to the podcast We are approaching about three quarters of a million downloads now, which is a a staggering number. I guess in next year at some point we'll hit that million mark. So thank you for your support. I think it shows that interest in the battlefields and the stories and the history of the Great War is ever present. And the podcast will continue to tell those stories as we move forward and as we begin to approach another new year along the old front line, the 105th anniversary year of events in 1918 and no doubt we'll do one or two special episodes tying into particular anniversaries during that year. But this week we return to the Forgotten Front, that bit of ground sandwiched between Flanders in the north on the northern end of the Western Front and the more popular, if that's the right word, Battlefields of the Somme. That also in some ways includes Arras, one of the forgotten battlefields of the Great War, but 
This week we're going to look at the battlefields around Lewes. Today I'm recording this on the 25th of September, which is the anniversary of the Battle of Lewes in 1915. So it's an appropriate day to be talking about this important battlefield and this important battle of the Great War. I often ask myself, why are battlefields like Lewes so infrequently visited compared to others? I'm not going to entirely use that word forgotten. But Lewes, like so many of these 1915 battlefields in northern France, is only about an hour from the coasts. Whether you come over on the ferry or the Eurotunnel, you can be down there pretty quickly. It's one of the closest Great War battlefields from that Channel Coast area, and so, in some respects, one of the most accessible. But it doesn't get the visitors. I suspect because the books on it, there isn't an overall guidebook to the area, there will be, once I finish writing it, I'm doing one of my walking books, Walking the Forgotten Front, which is a little bit behind, partly because of this podcast. I've only got two more chapters left to do. I'm hoping to get that finished next year, so hopefully it'll be out in about 18 months or so, depending on the publisher's schedule. There are books on the different battles in this area, New Chapelle and Albers, and of course Lose itself quite a few in the Battleground Europe series, as well as more recent studies. And I'll put a few pointers to these onto the podcast website. But I suspect as well, we often talk about landscape of the Great War. The area around Luz itself today is not the most attractive landscape compared to perhaps Flanders or the rolling chalkland of Arras and the Hindenburg Line battlefields and of course the Somme. But it has its own beauty. I've been there on these vast open landscapes around Luz, particularly in the winter, and there is a beauty to them. And it's a place as well that's perfect nesting ground for skylarks. So the larks are very often above many of the places that we're going to talk about in this podcast. And what we're hoping to do in this episode of A Battlefield in a Day is not to visit every part of the Luz battlefield, but to look at some of the key features and key locations that if you wanted to make a visit, make a connection to this part of the British sector of the Western Front, you could come and have a look at this in the day and get a sense of it and perhaps come back and do it in greater depth and walk the ground. So in terms of some background to the Battle of Luz before we get out onto the grounds itself, 1915 was a year of British offensives. It was a year in which, following the fighting of 1914, the Western Front had been created, the war had entered a period of stalemate, static warfare, and the British, and indeed their allies, the French, were keen to try and break this stalemate. The British launched their first major offensive at New Chapelle in March, and then made attacks at Albers Ridge in May and Festubert, Givenchy, and then eventually the Battle of Luz. Now those earlier actions on the Western Front in 1915 had often been plagued by a number of different factors and had resulted in fairly limited, if no, success in some cases. And one of those biggest factors was the availability of shells. We often hear about the shell scandal of 1915 when not enough shells were reaching the guns of the batteries along the Western Front and shells were rationed. So some of the bombardments for those attacks were pretty piecemeal and were not doing the kind of damage that was required to enable the infantry to go into action and capture their objectives. The Battle of Luz was different in that because that had been turned around. The appointment of the Minister of Munitions, Lloyd George, the governance of the unions in the shell factories and munitions factories which produced these artillery shells to go out to the battlefields, that had all resulted in a greater production of shells in 1915 in the lead up to the Battle of Luz and it meant that artillery 
actually finally had the shells that they required to fire a meaningful and powerful bombardment. And also, the army itself was changing at this period of the war. Britain had gone to war with a regular army of all volunteers. There was no conscription in Britain before the Great War, unlike most other European countries. That regular army had dwindled away in the battles of 1914 and early 1915, had gradually been replaced by territorial force, territorial army as we call them today, part-time soldiers from territorial battalions that had come across in that winter of 1914-15 in the early part of that year. And they too had suffered heavy losses at different battles along the Western Front. And Lewes saw the first major use of men from the new army, Kitchener's army, those volunteers of 1914, which had responded to Lord Kitchener, Secretary of State for War, his famous poster of Kitchener pointing at you, enticing you to enlist for king and country. And this was their first battle on the Western Front, not their first battle of the Great War, because Kitchener battalions had gone into action at Suvla Bay at Gallipoli just the month before in August of 1915. The purpose of Luz was a joint offensive. By this stage of the war, we were probably not even holding 60 or 70 miles of the Western Front, which was 450 miles long. The bulk of the front was being held by the French army, and the French wanted to rupture the German line, push the Salboche out of France, and end that war on the Western Front. And joint offensives had been tried a few times in 1915. This was on a bigger, bigger scale because the British would attack in the area in northern France around Luz. The French would attack close by near to Arras at Notre-Dame-de-Lorette and Hill 145, as they called it, Vimy Ridge, and also further down the Western Front in the Champagne. And 25th of September 1915, as recent research by Great War historians like Dave O'Mara has shown, the late Dave O'Mara, a great friend of this podcast, and a great friend of mine who did so much work on the French army and did so much work to enhance everybody's understanding of the French army and the Great War. This research that, that him and others have done points to the fact that this day, 25th of September 1915, not the Battles of the Frontiers of August 1914, was likely to have been France's deadliest day of the Great War. In fact, not just the Great War, probably France's deadliest day in its military history, with nearly 24,000 French soldiers killed in action. So Luz was a joint offensive, with an attack at Luz, the French attacking near Arras, and also attacking in the Champagne. And the idea was to break through the German lines on these three different sectors and possibly rupture the entire front. Now, that's not what happened. In each of those areas, ground, some ground was gained, it wasn't entirely successful. The French attempt to capture Hill 145, Vimy Ridge, failed in the Champagne. Some objectives remained in German hands. And at Luz, although the first day of the Battle of Luz was relatively successful for the British, some positions were not taken. And some objectives, like the ground around Hill 70, was not entirely taken until the end of the battle. Or, like the Hohenzollern Redoubt, those positions remained in German hands pretty much for the rest of the war. And when you visit lose today as we will do in this podcast you look at it and you think this is a crazy battlefield to attack over there's almost no cover at all it's vast vast open fields it's relatively flat but there are valleys here and there and where there's high points that when you look at the maps is always where the german positions were and if troops were going to advance in the open in broad daylight then it's not difficult to assume that they would suffer heavy losses and by the end 
of the fighting here at Lewes in 1915. The British had suffered over 50,000 casualties in the Battle of Lewes. Many of those Kitchener's battalions had been annihilated in the fighting and the promised breakthrough had not happened, which resulted in a change of command. The commander-in-chief who'd led the British Army on the Western Front since the beginning of the war, Sir John French, was replaced by Sir Douglas Haig, who would remain the commander-in-chief for the rest of the war. After 1915, Luz became a so-called quiet sector, one of these nursery sectors where troops were sent to after training in Britain had come across and hold the line here. But there were periods of renewed activity around Luz when the 16th Irish Division held the line here in 1916, for example, near to the village of Hullock. They came under a massive gas attack and there was mining operations almost on a continuous basis. And in August 1917, the Canadians attacked near Luz in the positions around Hill 70, pushing the Germans back into Lens and establishing a new line around that city. In 1918, the Germans attempted to break through on the Lenz-Luz front, but those attacks failed and the line held, although to the north, beyond the Labasse Canal, just to the northern sector of the Luz battlefields, the line collapsed there in what we would call the Battle of the Lease in April 1918. Now, despite the fact that there was only one major battle here, but years of static trench warfare, there are a significant number of cemeteries. We're not going to visit them all in this Battlefields in a Day episode, but it's an area that you can explore and find many interesting cemeteries with many interesting stories. So having had some background and looks at the story of the Battle of Luz in 1915, we're going to head out now and visit Luz in a Day. We begin our look at Luz in a day, not at Luz itself, but behind the lines. We're going to follow a similar journey to British troops on that battlefield in 1915. So we're beginning in the town of Bethune, Bethune, to the British troops. Bethune was behind the lines, several miles behind the lines, a town still with its civilian population in place, a vibrant town in some respects behind the front where British troops served and were billeted, and moved in and out of from the very beginning of the war. When the front stabilised in the northern French sector in the winter of 1914-15, Bethune was one of the towns that the British Army essentially took over as part of its infrastructure. We've spoken about this many times on the podcast in the way that the British from the very beginning of the war invested in that supply infrastructure to keep their troops in the field. And it was part, really, from the long term, part of the road to eventual victory. So in the days when there were no camps behind the lines, the town of Bethune was important because British soldiers could be billeted with the local population, not always successfully because big booted British Tommies would break things and stamp all over things and cause mayhem in places where they were billeted. So factories were taken over, abandoned buildings that could be used to billet soldiers and they were used instead and gradually that kind of infrastructure built up as the war went on until there were camps constructed outside the town of Bethune itself. So it became an important rest town in the same way that other places on the other parts of the front like Hazebrook or Balliol or Popperinger was in those sectors further north. It was also a place that British soldiers came to for a bit of R&R, rest and recuperation, a bit of time away from the trenches. When soldiers were out of the line, they would be in camps or they'd be in billets. 
they would have to have daily parades, there would be duties to be performed, but they would be given free time as well, and they would come into Bethune to go and visit one of the many estaminets around the main square, for example, and that's where we're starting our visit. We're in the main square next to the old belfry, the tower in the middle of Bethune, which is one of the structures that survives from the First World War period. The town of Bethune came out of very heavy artillery fire throughout the war, particularly in 1918. In one stage in May 1918, I think something like 70,000 shells fell on Bethune itself. So what we see in this main square around us now is a lot of evidence of post-war Art Deco style rebuilding. And this part of France has some of the highest proportion of Art Deco style buildings anywhere in France because it was a landscape destroyed in the Great War and rebuilt using this new style of architecture when these houses and these shops and these hotels and the banks and everything else were rebuilt in the 1920s. So if we went back to 1915, this would be a town thronging with British soldiers with pay in their pockets going to the estaminets to get food and drink. And in some of the back streets, and this is mentioned in a lot of memoirs of the Great War, Robert Graves, Frank Richards in Old Soldiers Never Die, this was a place where there was a large number of brothels in an environment where there are lots of young men with coin in their pocket and an uncertain future. Uh, the popularity of these kind of establishments at this time was high. Frank Richards recalls, for example, walking down a street in Bethune and seeing two or three hundred British Tommies queuing up just to get into one establishment. We have to remember, of course, that this was not an army of choir boys. These were rough, tough men in the middle of a war. From a military point of view, the town had training camps outside of it and depots for stores and ammunition. It sat at a major rail junction. Railways are so important in the resupply of troops on any battlefield, and that was true certainly from the British perspective from the very beginning of the war, so supplies could be brought up. We looked at how food and supplies were distributed in a previous podcast episode, and you can go back to find out more about that. But this was a classic example of the use of railways and the use of roads to get all of that material and food and water and everything else that was required up towards the front line area. When the war went static, there was a requirement for a large number of improvised trench weapons including grenades the British army had gone to war with some grenades in 1914 but they were supplies that were quickly used up they were inadequate the Mills grenade which we kind of think of every time we think of the Great War was not yet available in the period leading up to the Battle of Luz in any great numbers and improvised bombs such as jam tin bombs made out of jam tins with gun cotton explosive inside and a little wick fuse were used but here in Bethune one of the factories was taken over and they produced a batty bomb, which was a cast iron bomb, so a cylinder, which was cast in a way so that when it exploded, it would fragment. There was a fairly basic explosive charge inside with a little wooden stopper at the top and a wick fuse that was lit and the grenade was thrown. And they were designed, they're called a batty bomb because they were designed by the then Captain Basil Batty, of the Royal Engineers who had designed this grenade in response to the conditions of trench warfare that he was witnessing on the battlefield and using this foundry in Bethune they could easily be produced and I've no idea exactly how many of these batty bombs were made but it must be tens of thousands simply because of the number that still are turned up by the plough on these 1915 battlefields on a regular basis and the number that you see in private collections and museums. 
Basil Bassi survived the war. He went on to serve in the sappers and miners of the Indian Army and remained in the Indian Army after the war. But his legacy of that improvised weapon period of trench warfare when everyone had gone to war in 1914, prepared for war, just not for this war, they had to adapt to the circumstances and this was part of that adaptation. In the centre of Bethune we see a lot of these new buildings but as we make our way through the town towards Bethune Town Cemetery we can see a lot more original buildings, many of which show the signs of battle damage, of shell fire that's come over the town at different points in the war and damaged some of these buildings. This was on the fringes of the area of the Red Zone, that area of total destruction by the end of the First World War. So while Bethune was very badly damaged, it wasn't completely obliterated in the way that towns like Albert and the Somme or Ypres up in Flanders were by the end of the conflict. But going through the town, we eventually come to the very large civilian cemetery on the outskirts of Bethune. And this is where Bethune Town Cemetery, a Commonwealth Wargrave Cemetery, is located within. You go in through the entranceway and it's a vast area of French civil graves, many of which have French war graves among them and there are memorials on quite a few. As you walk up that first row of French graves, you'll see reference to French soldiers killed in other parts of the Western Front. These are family graves that often contain memorials to French soldiers who were missing because there was no Meningate, no Thiepval, no Luz Memorial, no Arras Memorial for them. And you see them missing soldiers, French soldiers, being commemorated on family plots like this. And that then brings us into the main British area of the cemetery. Aside from being that important town in the logistics hub of the British Army on this part of the front and a place where soldiers were billeted and came out on rest and did their training, it was also the route of evacuation for the wounded from the front line area. And we've got that classic case of regiment laid posts on the front line area, dressing stations just behind the front line, then feeding the wounded back to casualty clearing stations here in Bethune. And number 33 casualty clearing station opened at Bethune in 1914, so from the very beginning of the conflict. But one of the more unusual features that were used for the evacuation and treatment of wounded on this part of the battlefield around Bethune were the canals. The air canal ran into the area around Bethune and the British, with their inland water transport Royal Engineer barge units, used hospital barges to evacuate the wounded back to the base hospitals further towards the French coast. So that whole network of canals that were in this area, they were utilised too, not just for the treatment of wounded, but for the movement of supplies. But certainly here there were nurses, for example, coming forward on these hospital barges to Bethune, to the areas close to the casualty clearing stations. And again, this kind of marks the area that women got closest to the front on this sector of the British part of the Western Front. With any kind of medical facilities, although the British ones were pretty good and your chances of surviving a wound were reasonably high depending on the type of wound. Infection, you'll remember from our previous podcast episodes where we've looked at medical arrangements, was the great killer in the First World War. So wherever there are any kind of medical facilities, in this case the casualty clearing stations around Bethune, there will always be graves because soldiers sadly die of their wounds. And that's how this cemetery started in 1914, a cemetery that remained in use until the end of the conflict. There are seven British plots in this northern part of Bethune Cemetery which contain over 3,000 British and Commonwealth graves, making it one of the larger cemeteries in this part of the Forgotten Front. 
Plot one is the one that we come to first, just on our right. Some of the graves are set back behind a hedge on the right-hand side, and these are all early war graves from 1914, in particular units from the Indian Corps who held this sector of northern France at that time. And one of the graves that we come across in here is an interesting one that should be far better known, but sadly is not. It's a medical officer, an Indian medical officer, Captain Kanwar Indrahit Singh, MC. He was Indian medical services attached to the 57th Wild Rifles and was killed at Festibert on the 24th of November 1914. Singh was born in Lucknow in 1883 and he was educated in India and then at Cambridge and joined the Indian Medical Services in 1911. When he got out onto the battlefield, the role of medical officers like him were very important in dealing with the wounded, and he was mentioned in dispatches twice for his bravery in evacuating the wounded off of the field of battle, and was also awarded the Military Cross, which was a new decoration that came in in 1914 for junior officers, and he was one of the very first Indian-born officers to be awarded this decoration at the beginning of the Great War. A fellow officer said of him, Ten Victoria Crosses would not have been too much for what he did. He died when he was treating wounded in a house in Festibut that came under shell fire and he was killed in trying to save their lives. Aside from his military cross, it seems likely that if Singh had survived, then he might have been one of the first Indian medical officers to be awarded the Victoria Cross. And his status might be that of Chavas or Ackroyd or many of the other British medical officers who are so well known. But here he is in this grave on a forgotten part of the Western Front and really his story needs to be better known. Close by is the grave of Lieutenant Frank Alexander de Pass, VC. Now, he was a British Indian Army officer who served with the 34th Poona Horse. He died on the 25th of November 1914, aged 27. Born in London, he was educated at Rugby and Woolwich and initially served with the Royal Field Artillery from 1906 to 1909 when he entered the Indian Army. He came across with the Indian Corps in that autumn of 1914, and although he was in an Indian cavalry unit, they were dismounted and served as soldiers on the battlefield, and in those close-quarter battles, when the Indian Corps was holding the line from Festibert up to the area around Neuve-Chapelle, trench warfare was in its infancy, and, and bombing attacks were really important. We've already spoken about the batty bomb and the importance of hand grenades, and that kind of fighting was taking place on a daily basis in this part of the line. And his Victoria Cross was for one such bombing attack when they took on the German positions, and one of his team was wounded, and he was killed rescuing a wounded soldier under fire from the enemy. So he was an early Indian Army, Indian Corps VC recipient, and also the first Jewish soldier to be awarded the Victoria Cross in the Great War. And his story features in the British Book of Jewry, which is this fantastic role of honour that the Jewish community in Britain produced after the Great War that lists every Jew who served in the army and details of those who were killed, many of them with photographs. It's a book that's been digitised now and is widely available online. De Pass being the first Jewish VC, obviously he features very heavily in that book and featured in the Jewish press of that time within Britain. The whole cemetery here of more than 3,000 graves is a kind of a chronology of the battles around Bethune in the Great War and amongst those burials are quite a lot of senior officers. There are nine lieutenant colonels buried in here and two brigadier generals. 
One of those was Brigadier General George Nugent, who commanded the 141st Brigade of the 47th London Division. They were London Territorials, so part-time soldiers. He'd been a regular soldier who'd been educated at Eton, commissioned in 1882, and had served in some of those Victorian wars in the late 19th century and early 20th century. And then he'd been given command of a Territorial Brigade at the beginning of the Great War. He was killed on the 31st of May 1915, age 51, at a place called Pont Fixe, and his body was brought back here for burial, and the last post was sounded over his grave by personnel from the 6th London Field Ambulance with a firing party from the 1st 24th London Regiment. Now, we tend to think, you know, about generals dying in bed, that much lauded phrase. We've often mentioned it on this podcast But again, here's another example, too, in this cemetery of senior officers killed on the battlefield. So that idea that all generals died in bed, that they sat in those chateaus miles behind the lines, is something of a myth of the Great War. One grave that I always visit when I come to Bethune Town Cemetery is that of Lieutenant John Holland Fletcher. He was killed with the 1st 7th London Regiment, the Shiny 7th, on the 13th of May 1915, aged 35. He was born in Worthing in Sussex, where his father was mayor of the town, but they had a house and estate in Bognor on the Sussex coast, a little bit further up the Sussex coast. And Hotham House and Hotham Park, where they had this estate and this house, was just opposite my halls of residence when I was in my last year at the University of Chichester many, many moons ago. And Fletcher was a a photographer, an Edwardian photographer. He went round the lanes of Sussex, photographing those last vestiges of Edwardian rural life and his collection I'm pleased to say is survives and is in the archives of the West Sussex Records office at Chichester but when I was a student there in the 80s Hotham House and Hotham Park were still there in fact they were directly opposite my halls of residence in my final year at university and at nights you could hear a bell tolling from the tower of the house and at the time I didn't know the full story of this but I discovered that Fletcher's father had installed this bell and had it rung in memory of his son who'd been killed here in the fighting of 1915. I've no idea whether it still rings today but the house and the park is still there and it kind of connects parts of my own life with those paths of the Great War every time I come to this cemetery here at Bethune. One of the other things that we see in this cemetery is quite a number of private headstones on graves. So these are non-standard war graves headstones. And again, talking about the silent cities as we did in the previous podcast episode about uniformity in death and the commission's desire to create that uniformity by placing the same type of headstone on every grave. Here with these private grave markers, we get a bit of an insight into what it would have looked like if the commission had not done that, how many graves would have ornate monuments on them and others possibly would not be marked at all. So with thoughts of the dead buried here at Bethune and the different stories of the casualties that reflect the fighting across this region of northern France, we leave Bethune Town Cemetery and Bethune itself and we follow the roads out onto the battlefield themselves, joining the old Roman road between Bethune and Lens to head down to the 1915 area. Travelling down from Bethune on the old Roman road towards Lens, we pass through the back area of this part of the Western Front, 
We've come from the main hub of Bethune itself, but all of these little villages like Mazingarb and Nui-Lemines, they were all part of that infrastructure behind the lines, places where troops were billeted, where there were forward supply depots and where the communication trenches began that took men up towards the front line positions. And we see evidence of the war, not so much in the buildings themselves, although there are quite a few in this area that survived the Great War and show damage from shell fire, but more so in the green Commonwealth War Ghost Commission signs that indicate the different cemeteries, because as well as being approaches to the battlefields, this was the route out of the frontline area and also the route of evacuation of wounded. So the dressing stations were in this area. So we've come from Bethune, where the casualty clearing station was, the main proper medical facility for the reception of wounded. And here, as we get nearer to the battlefield, we're seeing the other chain of evacuation locations where the dressing stations, either an advanced dressing station or a main dressing station, was located. And again, cemeteries grew up around those. Further up, as we go past Mazingarb on our right and Vermel on our left, we come out into the area where the frontline trenches were located. The ground slopes ahead of us, and on the rise we can see the walls of the Luz Memorial and Dud Corner Cemetery. And we can see as well from here the vast open landscape that the Luz battlefield is. We're in the sector, and this road divided those two divisions, where the 15th Scottish Division attacked on our left and the 47th London Division attacked on our right. And the Scottish lads lose was very much a, a Scottish battle with the 9th Scottish Division attacking at the Hohenzollern Redoubt, 15th Scottish Division attacking here and many other Scottish regiments involved in the fighting as well. But the 15th Scottish, this is their first battle of the Great War, went into action here, their attack covered by smoke that caused a lot of confusion in no man's land. So at one point, some battalions were actually advancing in parallel to the German trenches because they got lost in the smoke rather than advancing towards them. And when the smoke lifted, they came under fire on their flanks from German machine guns and rifle teams in their trenches. And one of those who stepped forward to try and rally the men under these very trying circumstances was Piper Laidlaw of the King's Own Scottish Borderers. He was one of the battalion pipers and stepped forward with his bagpipes and played a tune to rouse the men and lead them into the German trenches. And for this and other acts of gallantry that day, he was awarded a Victoria Cross. He was badly wounded in the fighting at Luz, but he survived the Great War. Indeed, he was still alive in the 1930s when Sir John Hamilton made a movie called Forgotten Men to tell the story of the veterans of the Great War 20 years after the event and how they were largely forgotten by the British public at that time. And Piper Daniel Laidlaw appears in the film, interviewed by Sir John, and then goes on to play his bagpipes. And I'll embed the video clip of that into the podcast website so you can watch it. It's quite extraordinary, really. With bagpipers leading the men into battle on our left, over on our right, if we'd have been here in 1915, we'd have seen the footballers of Lewes leading the men of the London Irish Rifles into battle in the 47th London Division sector. Now, we did an episode on these for a previous podcast, and you'll be able to find that in the back catalogue of the old front line. But it was one of many occasions in the Great War in which football didn't just run through the kind of very veins of the recruitment of the British Army and its training, but also appeared on the battlefield itself. We tend to think of Billy Neville and his footballs on the first day of the Somme being the only example of this, but there were quite a few. And here at Lewes, this was certainly an example in this battle in 1915. But we go past Dud Corner for the moment and we continue towards Lewes itself. 
and we get into the urban area on the outskirts of Lens City and we follow a little route which you can follow on the map on the podcast website round to the back of the, the huge coal mountain we can see on our right hand side the site of what was then called the Double Crassier. And again, we've looked at this in a previous podcast episode as well. But we're going to go round the back of it now and take a little side road where we'll park up and then we go on foot for the last bit of it up onto the Coal Mountain. It's been kind of levelled off at the top there between the two twin peaks and you can walk right out and then look down on the Luz battlefield. And from up here, it gives you this kind of bird's eye view of the whole Luz area, not just the immediate ground around Lens itself. So beneath us is Cite Maroc, where the London Division assembled its forces to make the attack on the southern part of the Luz battlefield on the 25th of September 1915. We can also see Dud Corner ahead of us and the ground where the 15th Scottish Division came up those slopes up over the rise in between the two redoubts of the Lens Road redoubts where the cemetery is now located and the Luz Road redoubts which was on a minor road that came into Luz itself. Two German strong points that commanded that bit of ground captured by men of the 15th Scottish Division laid law piping amongst them coming up over that rise down into Luz village and we can see that. We can see right across that central part of the Luz battlefield where the different units went over the top. We can see with a pair of field glasses the lone tree, which we'll come to later on in this visit, which was roughly in the middle of the battlefield in that area where units of the 1st Division made their advance. And then beyond that towards where we can see the electrical pylons running across that northern area of the Luz battlefield. That's where the Hohenzollern Redoubt is. Beyond that is the Labasse Canal on the northern end, the very northern end of the advance where the men of the 19th Western Division made an attack near to Givinci Leila Basse. To our right, if we kind of look round Luz itself, we can see the rising slopes of Hill 70, and we're going to come to that later on in this visit too. So from up here, really, it's a grandstand view of the entire Luz battlefield, a place that I think that many people don't even know exists, that you can come to and do this. You need a clear day, obviously, to do it. But it does give you this remarkable view across this part of the battlefield and shows what a rising ground like this, an artificial one, in this case a slag heap, a coal mountain, can afford any defending force, which in this case, of course, was the Germans. And why this pivotal point, I mean, the double crassy as it is today, is somewhat higher than it was in 1915. But on this flat landscape, anything like this will afford you an advantage. So even these features, these artificial man-made features, became part of of the key aspects of the fighting here in 1915. On a clear day from part of it we can look back across Lens over towards Arras and we can see Notre Dame de Lorette and Vimy Ridge in the distance and then again looking back in the other way we're looking out towards Flanders and no doubt I've never tried it from here but on a clear day from here you can probably see the Messines Ridge and the distinctive church spire of Messines itself sitting atop that ridge just as you can from Vimy Ridge a little bit further away. So I think it shows the close proximity of some of these battlefields. You tend to think Ypres and this area and the Somme and Arras all being some distance apart, but really they're not. And it gives us uh, an opportunity to understand the kind of landscape between these places, the flat ground of northern France, the coalfield area to the south, the beginning of the rolling chalk downlands around Arras, taking us down to the Somme, and then towards Flanders, the beginning of the Flanders, the wet Flanders plain, and the start of the Messines Ridge and the so-called high ground in that part of the battlefield. It shows how small, really, the British sector of the Western Front was until the Somme in 1916, when the line was properly extended in that direction. 
We'll then retrace our steps back through the outskirts of the city of Lons, back along that Lons-Bethune road, heading towards Bethune now, back up to Dud Corner Cemetery. Why Dud Corner? Well, this was an area where there was a, a large number of unexploded shells, duds as they were called by the troops, and some humorous Tommy or staff officer decided to give this position on the battlefield a name, and because of these duds that were visible when you walked along this bit of the road, it was known as Dud Corner. The original burials were just a handful of graves of some officers who'd fallen at the very beginning of the Battle of Luz and an Irish soldier who died here in 1916. But this site was then chosen, probably because of its position overlooking the Luz battlefield, as a main concentration cemetery for this part of the battlefield in the post-war period when graves were moved in from the surrounding area. There are 1,812 graves here now, of which 1,126 are unidentified, so the vast majority of them. And because of the nature of a concentration cemetery where graves are retrieved from clearing the battlefields after the war, and this was a period of the war in 1915 when the battle took place here where soldiers only had one identity disc, one dog tag, and when they were killed that was removed. Very often there was nothing on the remains of these soldiers when they were found to indicate who they were. So although we see amongst the rows the regiments, so an unknown soldier of the Royal Berkshire Regiment or the Royal Sussex Regiment or whatever it is, the identity of the soldier is not known. So surrounding the cemetery itself, the walls of the cemetery, is the memorial to the missing, the Lewes Memorial, that commemorates more than 20,000 British and Commonwealth soldiers who fell on this part of the battlefield who have no known grave. Now, not all of them died in the Battle of Lewes in 1915. It covers the whole of the war from the 25th of September 1915, first day of the Battle of Lewes, until the end of the conflict in this region of northern France. But a very high proportion of those 20,000 names are men who died in the 1915 engagements here. And when we look at the casualties in the first couple of days of Lewes, a very high proportion of them do not have a known grave they were commemorated here, men killed in attacks where bodies lay out in no man's land and could not be easily recovered, if recovered at all. So they became sadly part of the landscape and many fragments of soldiers have been found over the years and indeed the remains of soldiers have been found on this part of the battlefield as well, something that's going on to this day. The commission, when we visited the Commonwealth War Graves Commission experience recently, were telling us how a large number of graves have been found in the Lens area, for example, from the fighting there in 1917-18. So again, the, the landscape here at Lewes, like all those landscapes of the Great War, is still very much giving up its secrets. We did do a separate episode on the Lewes Memorial, and again, you can find that in the back catalogue of the podcast. But what I do when I come here is go into the right-hand entrance of the cemetery go down the steps into the initial plot of graves you can see on the left-hand side, walk a few rows in, and you come to the grave of Captain Moutre Reed of the Northamptonshire Regiment, who was a posthumous Victoria Cross recipient for the first day of the Battle of Lewes. He'd served in the Royal Flying Corps before the Great War, but he'd had an accident which prevented him from flying, so he returned to his old regiment and served as an infantry officer. So the original grave, when I first used to come here, had the post-war badge that was used on Royal Flying Corps graves, which was a kind of a pseudo-RAF badge, because the badge of the RAF had not been entirely decided at that point when these cemeteries were made. But because he actually died with Northamptonshire Regiment, that was then subsequently changed, I think in the 90s or the early 2000s, to the grave that we see now with the Northamptonshire Regiment cap badge on it. 
When you read the citation for Moutre Reed's Victoria Cross, he'd been gassed in the opening phase of the attack, carried on and inspired his men to move forward and went and rallied parties of soldiers until he was mortally wounded. In fact, the VC was for a series of gallant acts that had been carried out by him in previous operations as well. And when you look at the story of the opening phase of Luz, you see that many of the officers leading their men into battle, this wasn't a case of them saying to their men, OK, the German trenches are over there, off you go. They were saying, follow me, and in doing so paid very heavily. The casualties amongst officers were very high in that opening phase of the attack. And if, if we look around the plot where Moutre Reed is buried, we see a lot of officers of the Royal Sussex Regiment. They were from the 2nd Battalion that was advancing close to where Moutre's Northamptonshires were, near to the lone tree and they too suffered very heavy officer casualties which resulted in one of their platoon sergeants sergeant harry wells who seeing all these officers become casualties he then took command and led the men towards their objective and he was awarded a victoria cross for his bravery in that attack a posthumous award of the victoria cross because he was killed in the fighting here his grave is not far away in another plot of dud corner cemetery he was a police officer before the war, reservist, called up on the outbreak of war and then rejoined his old battalion of the Royal Sussex Regiment, served with them from August 1914 out on the Western Front and was rapidly promoted having survived those battles on the Aisne and the Marne and then in the First Battle of Ypres and in the early engagements along the Western Front in 1915. Walking across to the beginning of the Luz Memorial, these memorials to the missing are arranged in panel order and they follow the old army order of precedence. So panel number one at the very top of it is commands and staff, senior officers. And Major General Thesiger is on there. He commanded the 9th Scottish Division in the fighting at the Hohenzollern Redoubt and was killed when he went into battle there to see what was going on. Several of his battalion commanders had been killed. And again, he could have been in a chateau or position behind the lines, but he went forward right into the heart of the battle to see if he could take command himself and push his men forward but he never returned. So a man commanding 20,000 soldiers disappeared into the battlefield in September 1915, and his name is commemorated here. Again, it kind of mocks that idea of generals dying in bed. And then we move on to the cavalry and then some of the senior corps of the British Army, the artillery and the engineers, and then the foot guards. And amongst the foot guards are the Irish guards, and among the names on their panel is Lieutenant J. Kipling, John Kipling, Jack Kipling is often called, who was the son of Rudyard Kipling. Kipling wrote the history of the Irish Guards to try and find out what had happened to his son after the war. There is a grave at St Mary's ADS Cemetery, which we'll pass later on in this visit, but his name remains here on the Lewes Memorial. Kipling spent a lot of time and a lot of money trying to discover the fate of his son, where he'd been killed, how he'd been killed and where he might be buried and never succeeded. But in the 1990s, a Commonwealth War Graves Commission official, Norm Christie, who went on to write many books about the Great War and make television programmes about the history of the First and the Second World War, discovered a grave of an unknown Irish Guards officer at St Mary's ADS and it was believed that that was the, the grave of John Kipling and a new headstone was erected. There is some dispute discussion about this perhaps worthy of a of a separate podcast but his name remains firmly on here and there's a nice tie as well with this location with Kipling and that when the memorial was unveiled Kipling paid for a, a bugler from the nearby village of Lewes to come up every evening at dusk and play the last post here standing by the stone of remembrance and playing out across the cemetery 
replicating what was happening up at the Menin Gate at Ypres at that time. Kipling died in 1936, so with the Luz Memorial being unveiled in 1930, for six years the last post was played here, but with his death, of course, the money that financed the playing of that bugling ended as well, and the last post was played no more except on anniversaries of the battle. Continuing along the panels of the Luz Memorial, we come to the Suffolk Regiment panels where we find the name of Charles Hamilton Sawley. He was an officer who was killed in the fighting near the Hohenzollern Redoubt in 1915, one of the minor war poets. Greatly influenced by Rupert Brooke, he wrote a lot of very similar poetry to Brooke, praising the war, the righteousness of sacrifice, almost glorifying war. And then he went off to war himself and took part in the fighting on the Western Front in 1915, which obviously changed his opinion of what the war was all about. And one of his most famous poems begins with, When you see millions of the mouthless dead across your dreams in pale battalions go, you can see that his view of the war had changed dramatically. If he had survived the Battle of Lewes, what poems would he have gone on to write? It's the same with Brooke. Brooke never saw combat. He died of an insect bite on the way to Gallipoli. If he had fought at Gallipoli and survived, how would his poetry have been different? Would they have both mimicked more of what we see from later poets of the Great War like Graves and Owen and Sassoon? Who knows? These are many of the lost voices of the Great War in so many ways. From the Suffolk Regiment panels we can cross into the graves and that's very close to where Sergeant Harry Wells is buried. And then going beyond that, we go up the steps into the Lewes Memorial again. It has two circular features where the panels of the memorial continue. And in the second of those is where we find the Royal Sussex panels. And being a Sussex lad, I bring people here to tell them the story of some of the men from the Royal Sussex Regiment who are on the panels here. There are many from the Battle of Lewes in 1915, but this memorial also commemorates the ground where the attack at Rishborg on the 30th of June 1916 took place, the day Sussex died. Again, we've done a previous podcast on this, and many stories of those who died in that fighting, including the young 2nd Lieutenant Aylett Cameron Cushion, the son of a Jewish tailor from Hastings in Sussex, who was commissioned on the 19th of June 1916, and killed in action 11 days later. Now, we often talk about the short life expectancy of young officers, the average being six weeks, but 11 days, that really is quite something. And also on there are brothers, including the three panel brothers from Worthing, who were killed on the 30th of June 1916. Mrs. Panel received three telegrams telling her that her sons were missing, believed, killed, no grave to ever see after the war, their names listed here, on the panels of their county regiment. And then continuing round the corner, in the Black Watch panels, we find the name of Lieutenant the Honourable Fergus Bowes Lyon, who was killed at the Battle of Lewes, and we'll come across his story later on in Quarry Cemetery. You could easily spend all day in this cemetery and looking at the names on the Lewes Memorial. There are so many stories here. This is the men of Lewes buried and commemorated here. But we'll continue with our journey, return to the old Roman road out the front of the cemetery and head up to our next area around the village of Vermel. As we come into the village of Vermel, this was a village behind the British front line at the time of the Battle of Luz. But 
before the British were here, when the French were fighting the Germans in this area, this was a, a village very much fought over in those earlier battles. The area around the Chateau in Vermel saw heavy fighting in 1914 and early 1915, and where the British cemetery is now located close to the site of the chateau, with one of the outbuildings of the chateau still part of the cemetery itself, there were French graves here originally from that early fighting. So the French had attacked and pushed the Germans back, establishing a new line beyond the village, the line that the British eventually took over. The cemetery here is a cemetery of two plots divided by a little road at the back. It's an unusual cemetery in that respect. And there are over 2,100 graves here, which again, it's being a cemetery away from the battlefield area. So not a concentration cemetery like Dud Corner. It reflects the casualties in this area. So it acts as a kind of chronology of the Battle of Lewes from when the British first took over in this sector up to the time of the Lewes attack itself in September through to the later battles in October 1915 and then the subsequent fighting at different points on the Lewes sector around the Hohenzollern Redoubt or the mining activities. And there are quite a lot of tunnellers buried in here, men from the Special Brigade, Royal Engineers, who were the gas companies that used poison gas on this part of the front for the very first time in the Battle of Lewes in September 1915, but it was also used on many subsequent occasions in this sector of the Western Front. I find that in many cemeteries along the old front line, there are graves that I always come to visit when I'm at those cemeteries, and here at Vermel, I always come to visit the grave of Sergeant Rano Moore. He was a, a new army recruit, a Kitchener's Army lad who joined up at the very beginning of the war in 1914 in the 6th Battalion of the Queen's Regiment. He was from Tooting in London. He went through the Battle of Lewes in 1915 and died in the Hohenzollern Crater sector in April 1916, aged just 17. Before the war, his father was a greengrocer in Tooting and he'd been an errand boy for his father's business. He'd lied about his age. He's one of those teenage Tommies that Richard Van Emden's written about in his work on boy soldiers of the Great War. And he joined up and he served. And by virtue of the fact that he survived the Battle of Lewes, he was promoted. But a 17-year-old sergeant, that is really quite something. I visit him because many years ago in, in one of those junk shops along the south coast of Britain, I found his memorial plaque lurking in a dark corner and rescued it. And it's been with me ever since. And it's nice to have those personal connections to the cemeteries and memorials of the Great War. Coming out of the village of Vermel, we go to the eastern side to a farm out in the fields called Le Routoir Farm. And this is a farm that was used as a brigade, advanced brigade headquarters during the Battle of Lewes in September 1915. It was a collecting point for the wounded being passed from the aid posts out on the battlefield towards the dressing station in Vermel, around the chateau area itself. And Henry Williamson, in A Fox Under My Cloak, which is his fictionalised memoirs of the First World War, Williamson never served at Lewes, but he talks about the Battle of Lewes in that volume. Here he describes the transports of the new army battalions moving up to take part in the continued Battle of Lewes, getting clogged up in this bit of ground. And I always think of that, the movement of men and supplies and equipment through here as the battle moved on. A few original bits of the pre-First World War, the Routoir farm, survive. A bit of gable end wall where you can see some of the old French pierre, the, the white chalk stones and the red brick walls. 
that indicates pre-war building styles and a bit of the old Laroutoire farm. There's also a British observation bunker around the back of the farm as well that once would have had a good view out towards Hill 70 and the ground around Lens, probably dating from the post-Battle of Lewes period. But around the corner of the farm itself, there's a little track that heads up towards Lewes. And I always take people round to that part of the farm. You can see the bunker there, of course, but walking further up the track, you've got that really excellent view from close to the site of the British trenches into the sector where Piper Laidlaw and the men of the 15th Scottish Division made their advance up towards the Lewes Road Redoubt and the Lens Road Redoubt en route to Lewes Village itself in that early stage of the Battle of Lewes in September 1915. It really is incredibly open ground here, almost beyond belief that battalions would be sent into action over that kind of ground, really, but it was the nature of the Battle of Lewes here in 1915. We'll go back round the farm itself, and if you're here in a car, park your car outside the farm. There's a little lay-by directly opposite the farm entrance, which you can use, and then walk up further away from the farm, up towards the main road that runs from Vermel across to Hullock. But before you get there, as the track goes off to the right-hand side, you can take that and walk right out into the fields, where the advance was in September of 1915. And you'll see ahead of you a single tree, a lone tree. And this is on the site of the original lone tree, or close to the site of the original lone tree, that was here in 1915. What was the lone tree? Well, it was a feature on a barren landscape. It was a cherry tree that was in blossom when the British first came here, and it was marked on the British trench maps. And in a landscape where there was nothing else, not a building, not a wood, a single tree was something you could use as a marker point so that's why it was indicated on the maps and when various battalions advanced close to here on the opening phase of the battle of Lewes, it was a symbol really of their part of the battlefield and quite a few soldiers were very keen to souvenir it Stuart Dolden of the London Scottish who wrote his memoirs records how men from his battalion went out and souvenired bits of it and I believe that they are still in the Regimental Museum of the London Scottish to this day. One of the veterans that I knew very well indeed, who was one of my kind of closest veteran pals, Harry Coates, he was also here with the London Scottish, Stuart Dolden's battalion, and took part in the attack. And Harry had joined up in the 2nd Battalion London Scottish at the beginning of the war, been sent out as a replacement for the losses the battalion had sustained at Messines in 1914. And this was his first time over the top in an attack. And it was the first time, as we mentioned, that British used gas on the battlefield, poison gas, phosgene gas, against the Germans. And they'd been issued with gas masks. As they went forward, they found some of the gas blowing back onto them, and Harry was pretty badly gassed in this battle. But as he went forward, he saw one of his best mates fall beside him. They were now wearing their gas masks, which were the PH helmets, the hood that went over your head, tucked inside your tunic, and you had two little eyepieces that you looked through. And Harry, struggling forward, having been gassed himself with this hood now over his head, moving forward with his rifle in his hands, saw his mate fall, ran over to him and turned him over. And there were two blank, staring eyes looking out at him through the glass of those gas mask eyepieces. His best mate was dead. Harry struggled on but fell, collapsed towards the German trenches because of the effects of the gas, was taken away by the stretcher bearers and evacuated back to Britain. His lungs were really not ever the same. Again, he lived to a ripe old age, but after he'd recovered from being gassed at Lewes, he was sent back for medical examination, and the MO, the medical officer who uh, saw him, 
took pity on him in some respects and said that you're not really fit enough to return to an infantry battalion. Was there anything that you did before the war that could help at headquarters? And he'd done the Pittman typing and shorthand course. And that's how he ended up on brigade headquarters when his battalion and London Scottish joined the 56th London Division in 1916. And he remained on brigade headquarters until the end of the war. We've talked about Harry's experiences a few times on this podcast, most notably at Gomacore on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, and you can go back through the podcast to find that episode. The Lone Tree was gone by the end of the First World War, either souvenired or blasted to bits, and there was nothing on this landscape for many, many years until some members of the Western Front Association in the 1980s decided to replace it with a new tree, which unfortunately was also then damaged and replaced again, and my old friends Wayne and Michelle Young were part of the, the group of people that did that. And there's a little marker stone in front of the tree now that commemorates what it is. And it's a great place to walk to, to stand there on that open landscape, knowing that you're right in the heart of the fighting of 1915, to get an insight into what the landscape and the battlefield of Luz is all about. And this is certainly one of the areas that I come to when you're almost guaranteed to have the skylarks above you. Returning to your transport, you then take your car up onto that Vermel Hullock Road and you move across that central part of the Luz battlefield. St Mary's ADS Cemetery, Advanced Dressing Station Cemetery, is on the right-hand side. There was an ADS there later on in the conflict, not during the 1915 fighting. It became a post-war concentration cemetery and there's over 2,000 graves in that cemetery now, the vast majority of them unknowns, unidentified, this is where the grave of an unknown lieutenant of the Irish Guards in the 1990s was identified as Lieutenant John Kipling, whose name we saw on the Luz Memorial. And you can go into the cemetery to see that grave. As you go in, it's over on the left-hand side towards the back of the cemetery. But when you walk through the rows here, you see the vast majority of them are unidentified. But you see a lot of cap badges of the regiments that fought in this area. The Royal Berkshire Regiment, the Royal Sussex Regiment, the Northamptonshire Regiment the Devonshire Regiment, the 8th and the 9th Devons, which were Kitchener battalions attached to a regular British division that was fought in this opening stage of the battle, were fighting very close to where the cemetery is today. William Noel Hodgson, the famous poet of the Somme, who was killed at Mametz on the 1st of July, was awarded the Military Cross for his bravery in this part of the battlefield in 1915. And out in the fields close to St Mary's, we can see two other small battlefield cemeteries, there are quite a few of them on this landscape of 1915 and here we've got 9th Avenue Cemetery named after a German trench that ran through this area. There the dead of the Cameron Highlanders were buried, 46 men. It was said that each man was buried so his right arm went around the shoulder of the man lying next to him so linked together as comrades in death. And close by is the Bois Carré Cemetery with 228 burials. There are some 1915 graves in there. That's when the cemetery was first used. But we mentioned the 16th Irish Division, the, the Kitchener, the volunteer division from Southern Ireland. Ireland was one country then, but these regiments within that division were largely from that Southern Irish area. The Dublin Fusiliers, the Munster Fusiliers, the Connaught Rangers. These units came across in this division in late 1915 into this loose sector, and this was one of the cemeteries they established for their dead. But we'll continue along the main road into Hullock itself. We see on the roundabout there uh, a model of the lifting gear from the mining, which was the main employer, the main industry in this area of northern France for many, many years. The pits have been closed largely since the 1970s. But we'll turn off 
go down towards Lens itself and it brings us into another open area of battlefield into what is known as the Field of Corpses. Now this is on the other side of a slope, so coming from where the small battlefield cemeteries of the Bois Carré, 9th Avenue and the larger St Mary's ADS is, the troops advancing there reached the crest of a ridge and beyond that the ground dropped away into a valley to the next ridge and this is the ground that we're in now. And on the 26th of September 1915, the second day of the Battle of Luz, men of the 21st and the 24th Division, two new army divisions, Kitchener's Army Divisions, made their attack across this ground. They advanced in broad daylight over the crest of that ground down into this valley towards a semicircular shaped German position, which followed the contours of the high ground between Hullock and the rising ground of Hill 70, which you can see in the distance there. The Germans in this second major line of defence in this area of the Luz battlefield had this semicircular shaped trench system in which was a series of defensive positions which they called Stutzpunks and in there were machine guns and probably mortars and as the men of these infantry battalions of the new army came over that rise into this open ground they got hit by machine gun fire from different directions, mortars, artillery and gradually those attacks melted away. And when we examine the casualties from the different battalions that advanced here, in some cases 80 to 90% of the dead from these attacks do not have a known grave. They're commemorated on the Luz Memorial. The nature of the fact that the bodies were left out on the battlefield and unrecoverable. We stay on this road and come up to a modern roundabout and go off to our left. There is an aerodrome here, um, an airfield where light aircraft fly from, and a wooded area. And there's a Canadian memorial here to the later Canadian actions of 1917. But you can walk out onto this ground and look back down across from the crest of Hill 17 get an idea of its importance as a bit of high ground. It's only 70 metres above sea level, thus its name. But here on this flat, barren landscape, it affords an advantage to the Germans that had that advantage. Men from the 15th Scottish Division reached this on the first day of the Battle of Luz, but Hill 70 became disputed ground, changing hands on regular occasions, and with the fighting that followed in the days after the first initial advance, it changed hands on a regular basis, and by the end of the Battle of Luz, the majority of it was still in German hands. It remained a static part of the front until the Canadians were here in August 1917, and in the Battle of Hill 70 that year, the Canadians pushed the Germans back in this area of the battlefield, pushing into Lens itself and establishing a new line in the urbanised battlefield that Lens became. This was a move away from the open ground here, down into the terrace streets and the urban area around the city of Lens itself, a very different type of warfare to what had been going on here. Hill 70 is an important battle for Canada because this was the first operation in which Arthur Curry is the newly appointed commander of the Canadian Corps, the first Canadian-born commander of that corps. Sir Julian Bing, who commanded it previously on the Somme and at Vimy, had now been promoted to an army commander, and in June 1917 Curry then took over. This was his first battle with him at the helm heralding his command of the Canadians right up until the final battle of the Great War at Mons on the 11th of November 1918, so a, a key turning point in Canada's military history of the First World War. And having cast our eyes across the landscape, we'll retrace our steps slightly and head back through Hullock over towards the northern part of the Luz battlefield and a small cemetery out in the fields close to the site of the Hohenzollern Redoubt.
We're back out in that open landscape of the Luz battlefield and we're standing outside the entrance to Quarry Cemetery. It's an unusual cemetery. It's named Quarry Cemetery. It's actually in a quarry. So the graves are below us in the bowl, if you like, of the quarry setting. And we go down the steps into the cemetery. It's a battlefield cemetery established just behind the British lines in front of what was the Hohenzollern Redoubt, which was a German defensive position close to the village of Oshilela Basset. And Hohenzollern was the name of the German royal family. This was a name that the British gave the redoubt rather than the Germans themselves. It was a strong defensive position at the northern end of the battlefield with excellent fields of fire across this open landscape. And it was a key objective in the early phase of the fighting. The 9th Scottish Division went into the attack here on that first day, commanded by Major General Thesiger, whose name we saw on the Luz Memorial earlier on in this visit. And his battalions, while having got into the Hohenzollern Redoubt, had suffered such heavy casualties that other units had to be brought up to reinforce them. And, for example, a detached brigade from the 24th Division, which included the 9th Battalion, the Royal Sussex Regiment, were sent in here and went through the shattered remains of those Scottish troops that had captured this ground towards a position called Fossate and the Dump, which was a, a pit head and a slag heap on this part of the battlefield. And they defended that ground against German attacks until they were gradually pushed back due to heavy losses. The fighting here then continued for pretty much the rest of the battle. The Germans recaptured the redoubt and on the 13th of October 1915, territorial battalions of the 46th North Midland Division advanced across here. The Lincolnshire Regiment, the Leicestershire Regiment, the North Staffordshire Regiment and the South Staffordshire Regiment and suffered terrible losses attacking across this open ground to the heavily defended redoubt. And even after the battle was over, the fighting continued in this area on into 1916 with localised actions in what was known as the Battle of the Hohenzollern Craters in the spring of 1916. Alf Rosell, who I've often spoken about on this podcast, was here with the Royal Fusiliers during that time. And he said that he thought Luz and the Hohenzollern was bad enough until he went down to the Somme. But unit after unit went through here, including some of the cavalry regiments of the British Army who were dismounted and served as infantry here in 1916. And the graves in the Quarry Cemetery very much reflect that. In the early stage of the fighting, one of the officers killed in the battle for the Hohenzollern Redoubt was Captain Fergus Bowes Lyon of the Black Watch. We came across his name on the Luz Memorial. But in the lead-up to the Great War centenary, some new evidence came to light from his former batman, which indicated that he'd been buried in this cemetery during the war. And the commission, the Wargraves Commission, erected a special memorial to him, which is a, a headstone with his name on, on the edge of the cemetery, indicating that he is buried near this spot. So, like Kipling, he's now commemorated in two locations. Whether their names will ever be removed from the Luz Memorial... I guess only time will tell. The fighting at the Hohenzollern Redoubt really deserves its own podcast episode and we will return to that one day. But walking across these fields now from Quarry Cemetery, we can take the track that cuts us across the area where the craters were. When I first came here in the 80s, a lot more evidence of mine craters was visible. Gradually they've been filled in, the area being used as a kind of civic dump really, with cars being thrown in there and all sorts of rubbish. And then when I came here in the early 90s, the area had been extensively cleared, almost a foot of soil taken off this ground to turn it into an area for shooting. 
and there was a huge amount of war detritus just scattered everywhere. Everything from rifles through to trench shields through to barbed wire pickets and barbed wire itself and all sorts of other paraphernalia, most of which sadly just ended up in a skip. This is a time when no kind of archaeology was ever done on these locations, so who knows what was lost during that period. But thanks to my friends Wayne and Michelle Young, they introduced me to Henri, a, a chap that lived in the miners' cottages close to the site of where the redoubt was located, and he'd been walking the fields here for many, many years and picked up this incredible collection of cat badges and shoulder tiles. And this had not been done with a metal detector, it had just been done by walking the fields in his spare time. And he wasn't really sure as to what these badges were or what they represented. And when he tipped them out on his kitchen table out of a little biscuit tin and I went through them, in one part of the collection alone was the cap badge and shoulder title of almost every unit in the 46th North Midland Division who'd taken part in the attack here on the 13th of October 1915. So these tiny little brass and bimetal objects were not just objects in their own right, they helped tell the story of that part of the battlefield, such as the power of simple objects like that when they're found on this kind of landscape. I find the Hohenzollern Redoubt battlefield a haunting part of the Western Front to visit. It's open, it's exposed, there are still signs of the mine craters, there are the memorials to the units that fought there and nearby the graves in the quarry cemetery. You can have this landscape to yourself most of the time that you come here. You're walking, though, never alone, but with the ghosts of more than a century ago. There's something about these quiet corners of the battlefields. I wish, personally, they weren't so quiet. Lose is an important battlefield, an important battle fought under unfavourable ground at unfavourable times, and at great cost, more than 50,000 British casualties here, in 1915 alone. It's a battle that deserves to be better known, better understood and more visited. But when you come here and you can have this vast and impressive landscape to yourself, walk in the shadows of the Great War, I think it once again shows the power of these places, the way they connect us to the Great War and the way the stories of those who were here more than a hundred years ago, continue to inspire us. Those men of Luz, the regulars, the territorials, the new army men, going into their big push, their defining moments of the Great War, and carving out their corner, their pathway, their part of the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcore. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon. <laughs>